Section 40 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tahare, Tyrol, Austria. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Sotner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 10, Part 1. The Austro-Prussian War, My Husband with the Army, Parting Letters, Dr. Bresse, The Course of the War, Victory of Kutztosa, Austrian Reverses in Bohemia, War Correspondence in the Newspapers, Discussions with My Father, A Long Letter to My Husband. So it had come again, this greatest of all misfortunes, and was greeted by the populace with an accustomed rejoicing. The regiments marched out. In what state were they to return? And wishes for victory and blessings and the shouting of the street boys were their accompaniment. Frederick had been ordered to Bohemia some time previously, even before war had been declared. And just when matters were in such a position as to enable me to entertain a confident hope that the quarrel about the duchess, so unblessed and so contemptible, would be settled amicably. And therefore, this time I was spared the heart-rending leave-taking which proceeds to the setting off of one's beloved directly to the war. When my father brought me the news in triumph, now it is off, I had been already alone for a fortnight, and for quite some time I had quite made my mind up to this news, as a criminal in his cell has made up his mind to the reading of the death sentence. I bowed my head and said nothing. Keep up a good heart, my child. The war will not last long. In a day or two we shall be in Berlin. And as your husband came back from the Schleswig-Holstein, so he will come back from this campaign, but covered with much greener laurels. It may indeed be unpleasant for him, being himself of Prussian extraction, to fight against Prussia. But after he entered into Austrian service, he became one of us, body and soul. Those Prussians, the arrogant windbags, they want to turn us out of the Bund. They will soon repent it. If Schelisha becomes ours again, and if Habsburg's, I stretched out my hand. Father, one request, leave me to myself. He might have imagined that I felt the need of giving my tears full vent, and as he was an enemy to all scenes of emotion, he willingly granted my wish and took his departure. I, however, did not weep. I felt as if a numbing stroke had fallen on my head. Breathing heavily, staring blindly, I sat motionless for some time. Then I went to my writing table, opened the red volume, and made this entry. The sentence of death is pronounced. A hundred thousand men are to be executed. Will Frederick be among them? And I also as a consequence. Who am I that I should not perish like the rest of the hundred thousand? I wish I were dead already. From Frederick I received the same day a few hasty lines. My wife, be of good cheer. Keep your heart up. We have been happy. No one can take that from us. Even if today for us, 
As for so many others, the decree has gone forth, it is finished. The same thought here as I expressed in my red book about the many others who were sentenced. Today we go to meet the enemy. Perhaps I shall recognize there a few comrades in battle of Dupel and Alsen, possibly my little cousin Godfrey. We are to march on Libenau with the advanced guard of Count Clamgallas. From this time there will be no more leisure for writing. Do not look for any letters for you. At the most, if opportunity offers a line as a token that I am alive. But before that, I should like to find one single word which could comprehend in itself the whole of my love that I might write it here for you in case it might be my last. I can find only this word, Martha. You know what that means for me. Conrad Althaus had also to march. He was full of fire and delight in battle, and animated by sufficient hatred of the Prussians to make him start off with pleasure. Still, his parting was hard for him. The marriage license had arrived only two days before the order to march. Oh, Lily, Lily, he cried with pain as he said adieu to his affianced bride. Why did you delay so long to accept me? Who knows now whether I shall come back again? My poor sister was herself full of repentance. Now, for the first time, there sprang a passionate love for him she had slighted so long. When he was gone, she sank into my arms in tears. Oh, why did I not say yes long ago? I should now have been his wife. Then, my poor Lily, the parting would have been all the more painful for you. She shook her head. I well understood what was going on in her mind, perhaps more clearly than she understood herself. To be obligated to part with the love longing still unfulfilled, and perhaps destined to remain forever unfulfilled. To see the cup torn from their lips, and possibly shattered, before they had a single drought that might well be doubtly torturing. My father, sisters, and Aunt Mary now removed to Grimitz. I was easily persuaded to go there, too, with my little son. As long as Frederick was away, my own hearth seemed extinguished. I could not stay there. It is strange. I felt myself just as much a widow, to have done with life just as thoroughly as if the news of the outbreak of war had been at the same time of the news of Frederick's death. Occasionally, in the midst of my dull grief, a brighter thought would break in. He is alive and surely may come back. But along with it, an idea of horror would rise again. He is writhing and agonizing in intolerable pains. He is fainting in a trench. Heavy wagons are driving over his shattered limbs. Flies and worms are crawling over his open wounds and the people who are clearing the field of battle take the stiffened object lying on the ground for dead, and are shoveling him still alive along with the dead into the damp trench. There he comes to himself, and, with a loud scream, I woke up from such images as these. "'What is the matter with you now, Martha?' said my father in a scolding tone. "'You will drive yourself out of your senses if you brood in this way and cry out so.' 
Why will you summon up such foolish pictures out of your fancy? It is sinful. I had indeed often given expression aloud to these ideas of mine, and this irritated my father extremely. Sinful, he went on, and improper and nonsensical. Such cases as your excited fancy pictures do no doubt occur once in a thousand times among the common men. But a staff officer, as your husband is, is not left to lie on the field. Besides, as a general rule, folks should not think about such horrid things. Such conduct involves a kind of sacrilege, a profanation of war, in keeping these pitiful details before one's eyes instead of the sublimity of the whole. One should not think about them. Yes, yes, not think about it, I replied. That is always the custom of mankind in the presence of any human misery. Don't think about it. That is the support of all kinds of barbarity. Our family doctor, Dr. Bresse, was not at this moment at Grimitz. He had voluntarily placed himself at the disposal of the army medical department and had started for the theater of war. And the idea occurred to me also whether I should not go too, as a sick nurse. Yes, if I could have known that I should be in Friedrich's neighborhood, be at hand in case he was wounded, I would not have hesitated. But for others? No, there my strength broke down. My spirit of sacrifice failed. To see them die, hear the death rattle, want to give help to hundreds begging for help, and have no help to give, to bring on myself all this pain, this disgust, this grief, without thereby getting to Frederick, on the contrary, diminishing thereby the chance of meeting him again. For the nurses themselves ran into various kinds of danger to their lives. No, that I would not do. Besides, my father informed me that a private person like myself was altogether inadmissible for nursing in a field hospital, that this office could only be exercised by soldiers of the army medical service, or at the most by sisters of charity. To pluck Sharpie, he said, and prepare bandages for the Patriotic Aid Society, that is the only thing that you ladies can do to help the wounded, and that my daughters ought to do diligently. On that I bestow my blessing. And it was now this occupation that my sisters and I devoted many hours of every day. Rosa and Lily worked with gently compassionate, almost happy-looking faces. As we heaped up the fine threads under our fingers in soft masses, or folded up the strips of linen in beautiful order together, the occupation affected the two girls like an office of charitable nursing. They fancied themselves soothing the burning pains and staunching the bleeding wounds, hearing the sighs of relief and seeing the grateful glances of those on whom they attended. The picture they so formed on the condition of a wounded man was then almost a pleasant one. Inevitable soldiers, who delivered from the dangers of the raging fight, were now stretched on clean, soft beds, and there would be nursed and pampered up to the time of their recovery lulled, for the most part, in a half-unconscious slumber of luxurious fatigue, waking up again occasionally to the pleasant consciousness that their lives were saved, and that they would be able to return to their friends at home and relate to them how they had received their honorable wounds at the Battle 
of our father also encouraged them in this innocent way of looking at it bravo bravo girls working again today you have now again prepared delights for a number of our brave defenders what a relief it is to get a pad of sharpie like that on a bleeding wound i can tell you a tale about that long ago when i got that bullet in my leg at palestro and so on and so on i however sighed and said nothing I had heard other histories of wounds than those which my father loved to relate, histories which bore about the same relation to the usual veterans' antidotes as the realities of the life of a poor shepherd to do the pastoral pictures of Watteau. The Red Cross I knew through what an impulse of popular sympathy, shocked to the most painful degree, that institution had been called into life. In its time I had followed the debate which took place at Geneva on the subject, and had read the tract by Dunon, which gave the impetus to the whole thing. A heart-rending cry of woe was that tract. The noble patrician of Geneva had hurried to the field of Solferino in order to give what aid he could, and what he found there he had related to the world. Innumerable wounded men, who had been lying there for five or six days without any assistance. He would have liked to save them all, but what could he, a single person, do? What could the other few individuals in the face of this mass of misery? He saw men whose lives might have been saved by a drop of water, by a mouthful of bread. He saw men who, still breathing, had to be buried in fearful haste. Then he spoke out, said what had often been admitted, but now found an echo for the first time, that is, that the means for nursing and rescue at the disposal of the army administration had not grown in proportion to the requirements of a battle, and so the Red Cross was founded. Austria had at the time not yet adhered to the Geneva Convention. Why? Why is there resistance opposed to everything that is new, however rich in blessing, and however simple it may be? Because of the law of laziness, the power of holy custom, the idea is very fine, but impracticable, is the saying. I often heard my father repeat these arguments of hesitation used by several of the delegates at the conference of 1863. Impracticable, and even if practicable, yet in many points of view unbecoming. The military authorities could not allow that private action on the field of battle was admissible in war tactical aims must have the priority over the friendly offices of humanity. And how could this private action be surrounded with proper guarantees against the existence of espionage? And the expenses! Is not war costly enough already? The voluntary nurses would, through their own material wants, fall as a burden on the provision department, or, if they are to supply themselves in the country occupied, Will there not arise a regrettable difficulty for the army administration through the purchase of the articles necessary for the service and the immediate raising of their price? Oh, this official wisdom, so dry, so well instructed, so real, so redolent of prudence, and so unfathomably stupid. End of section 40. Recording by Tahereh. Tyrol, Austria.